books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz, and you are my People of the Book. And today, my guest is definitely no stranger to those of you, not even only those of you in the business world, but to those of you most certainly in the beauty world because my guest today is none other than Ian Fur, founder of the Sorbet Group. Ian, welcome to the show. Hi, Janice. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, and thank you so much for giving me your time. And Ian, to, to let those of you know who don't know, is a serial entrepreneur. He's the founder, as I said, of the Sorbet Group of Companies, and more recently of the Hatch Institute, which is a coaching and consulting business that is helping business owners and leadership teams across South Africa to discover the transformative power of cultureering. And that is exactly what we're going to be chatting about today. Because, Ian, you have a new book out, which is called Cultureering. And cultureering is described as the art of building a strong culture in a diverse workforce that delivers obsessive customer service. Customer service is something that I personally am quite obsessive about, not something that we are uh, great with here in South Africa, but we're going to chat about that. So tell us firstly how you've, you've reached this point in your career, which is obviously a long and illustrious one. Very long, very long. So it's been about 45 years in, in time since I started wow. my first entre- entrepreneurial venture. I was about 22 years old at the time. My older brother came back from America and said we should open a business called Kmart, which he saw there. And it was a big retail department store. And, and that's where the journey started. I, I knew nothing about nothing. I had really successfully dropped out of university in my second year. And so I was hanging around in the music business. I was, I was doing some singing. Uh, and in, oh. in cocktail bars, yes, I used to be a singer, believe it or not. And, uh, and I was just enjoying my life and he said, let's, let's do this. And then I said, which one of us is we? And he said, well, you, you're going to be doing it because he was going to back it and, and I was going to be doing it. So I did what most 22 year old naive young boys would do. I said, sure, it sounds like fun. Let's try this. And so we started a new business called Kmart. We actually used the American name, which was a bit stupid, um, which would come back to haunt us about 12 years later when they took us to court for that. Not only did we use the name, but completely naively, I used their logo as well, which was really stupid. But nevertheless, we started this business, and um, it was my introduction to the other side of South Africa. You know, I, I had been brought up, I went, I went to King David Richard Park. I had been brought up in a very Jewish, isolated, somewhat privileged environment. And then I was thrown into this other world where all my staff were black, all my customers were black. And that introduced me to this new world, as I say. Now, I felt I was quite privileged in that itself. That I was given that opportunity to meet people and to, and to communicate and to learn about what was really going on in South Africa because I was completely ignorant, blissfully ignorant 
of what apartheid was doing to people in the country. This was 1976, around about the time of the Soweto uprising. And so I had a bit of a baptism of fire. You know, I was too young, I was too white, I was too ignorant to really be able to run a business with all black staff. So I was thrown in the deep end, literally. Uh, and I decided to get myself a mentor. And then he took me into Soweto. He taught me everything there was to know. I said, please teach me about South African politics. I want to know. So then I, I could then be able to communicate effectively with the people that I was working with. And it, it started a long, long journey that lasted 45 years. And I became quite obsessed about race relations, about social injustice. I got quite heavily involved in the political world without being too actively involved, if, if, if you know what I mean. I just, I, I learned about everything. I got hold of every book I could read. I, could, I learned about, um, about Steve Biko and black consciousness. And I learned all of the things that I needed to learn. And slowly but surely, I realized that if you could understand the socio-political environment in which your employees are living, working, you would be able to understand them better. And that was my philosophy. So I became quite fascinated by business culture. And I grew a very strong affinity with the people side of business. I don't believe I've ever been a great businessman, to be honest. I think I there are, are many who would disagree, but I think we, <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. For those who've just tuned in, I am talking to Ian Fur today, and we are talking about his book, Cultureering. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I'm back. You're listening to People of the Book, and today we are talking to Ian Fur, those of you will might know him as the founder of the Sorbet group of companies, but today we're talking about his new book, Cultureering, which is about building a strong business culture in a diverse workforce. And Ian, before the break, you were talking about how you started off in business. You've had a long career, as you said, and you were talking about how you became aware of, of race relations and the diversity that exists in a business culture. You, you said you, you, you thought that you're not actually a great businessman. And really, I would tend to disagree. And I think there are many who would, who would disagree. So you use that and you, you obviously learned from your mistakes. You said that you obviously made a big mistake with the, with the Kmart brand when you started out with your brother. So then you, you moved on and you had learned a lot and you had, it was the first time you had, you had worked with such a diverse group of people. It wasn't what you were used to being exposed to. How did you then move into starting the Sorbet Group? I mean, I know I keep coming back to it, but that is what you are most known for. So, so just to complete that story very quickly, I, I learned, I began to understand the very strong connection between culture and service. And if I could create a culture in which everybody felt a sense of belonging, regardless of who they were and their background and their race and their culture or their religion, it didn't matter. If everyone could feel a sense of belonging, we could try and develop a, a, a culture of common purpose. And common purpose was always, I come to work to serve. Most people think they come to work to make money. And to Absolutely. And, and I stopped that in its tracks. And I said, no, no, we don't come to work to earn a living. 
become to work to serve the needs and wants of our customers. And if we do that well, we will earn a living. But if you put the financial reward first, before the service, you're going to fail. So the golden rule for me that I learned very early on in my working life was that you must always put service before reward. And I, I lived by that for many, many years. In the process, I started to develop a culture framework in which I could get people to start to feel a sense of belonging, that they was a, they felt trusted and respected. Uh, they felt that their contributions were valued, that, that there was a fairness and dignity and equality, et cetera, et cetera. And if you could achieve that, then you could start to deliver real customer service because people were all coming to work for the same reason. So if we jump to the Solvay story, by the time I got there, I'd been through a number of businesses. I'd been in the retail business. I'd been in the music industry. And I had run a race relations consultancy for seven years, from 1991 to 1997, where I consulted to public companies on how to work with racism in the workplace and how to deal with it and how to overcome it. And so by the time I got to, to 2000, when we eventually sold Paymont, which had become Supermont after we were taken to court, um, I sold that to the Edcon group with my brother, and uh, we, we then moved on, and I was looking for something to do. But by that stage, I had developed this culture frame, which I now call culturing. It wasn't called culturing at that stage. Um, but it was a culture framework that I believe could work in any business. And I was now looking for a new business. In most cases, what happens for an entrepreneur is you find a business opportunity, you try and get it off the ground, and then when it's up and running, you start to build a culture as you employ people. What I did was the, was the exact opposite of that. I already had the culture that I wanted to, to implement into a new business. All I needed to do was find what business that would be. And it just turned out to be the beauty industry. Believe me, I had no, no idea that I wanted to be in the beauty industry and it was certainly <laughs> not part of the plan. I, I used to think that, that, you know, that a Brazilian was a person who lived in Brazil. So I had actually, <laughs> <laughs> and then Hollywood, Hollywood was a place they made movies. So, and, and then I learned, I learned a lot about about the beauty industry. Uh, that's a that's and, a whole different conversation. That's <laughs> <laughs> a whole different conversation. I mean, we used to do some crazy things. I learned about waxing. There used to be a thing called a three quarter leg wax. I'm sure you know about. I do. Um, and, and it used to boggle my mind as to which quarter they left out. And and so I. <laughs> I used to have lots of problems with that. But anyway, I, I learned I learned a lot from working with women. In the end, I was working with over 3,000 women and about five men. Uh, so, so I learned that. But the point was that I discovered that business. Somebody once told me that the beauty industry had never been able to develop a branded chain of multi-salons under one name. And that became my little obsession. I thought, okay, this is an opportunity to try and achieve something that's never been done before in South Africa. And the way that I went about that was implementing the culture that I felt was so important. And looking back, it allowed us to to get a competitive advantage. It was so significant that we became the largest beauty salon chain in Africa and probably in the top 20 or 30 in the world. 
and Silva, if I'm not mistaken, it's become global because I know when I had the opportunity, well, obviously not recently, my mother lives in London and mm. I know that there was a sorbet down the road in, I think, was it Temple Fortune, Edgware? I don't know, mm-hmm. somewhere nearby in mm-hmm. the arcade of shops. I went to visit yeah. and I was like, oh my gosh, there's a sorbet, which was completely <laughs> unexpected. Sadly, sadly, that story did not have a happy we, we We had to close down some of those stores in London. We, we, uh, and it's a long story as to why that happened, but I think if I tried to shorten it, probably my own arrogance, uh, in the view that I could just do what I did in South Africa and it would just be transportable in, into London and it didn't work out like that at, at all. So I learned some good lessons. Failure is very much a part of success. You need to fail at least once or twice before you can ever be successful. So I, I, I've always, as an entrepreneur, I've never been afraid to fail because I know that it's part of, of the growth curve and, and what you have to learn in order to be successful. So that was a disaster, quite frankly, the UK. Oh, wow. Uh, for us. I'm sorry to hear yeah. that. So not, sorry I mentioned that. No, no, no. It's important that you mention it because we, we always need to know that there's not, this is not all, not everything you touch tends to go. Life is not like that. Sometimes it, it doesn't work out. And, and as long as we can learn the lessons, then we move forward. It's an important part of success, as you said. I just wanted to ask you, one of the important things you said is obviously that the culture is about as you need to know that you're there to serve and you're there to serve customers. What about people who come to work and they think they're there to serve the boss and they think they are there to serve whoever it is that they are working for, which is their superiors. Right. Well, that's the complete opposite of everything that I believe. Right. never comes to your boss. Your boss is there to serve you. It's the other way around. We call that servant leadership, Mm -hmm. where you are serving the people who are serving the people. So there's been far too much focus on serving the boss. You're 100% right. Most people do that. Why? Because the boss is the one that holds your destiny in his or her hands. Right. And controls your next salary increase and your next promotion and when you can go and leave, et cetera, et cetera. So you're pretty focused on serving the boss. But when you do that, you effectively have turned your back on the customers because you're focusing and you're facing the wrong direction. So we say turn around, put your back to the boss, let the boss serve you. You go out there and serve your customers to the very best of your ability and understand that the purpose of work is to serve, not to make money. And I think, I mean, I I ran all the induction training courses myself at Sawback for every single person that ever joined the business. That's over 3,000 people. They would come to my one-day induction training when they joined the company, and I would teach them this philosophy, the whole culture-nearing philosophy. What does it mean? Why do you come? What is the purpose? And people started to realize that it was so much more than, than just earning a living. You were, you were touching people's lives. That was our purpose. Our purpose, when you run a beauty seller, you're not just selling treatments and products. You are actually allowing people to come in there so that they can feel good about themselves. So we were selling a feeling, not a product. And so we had to get people to understand that. And I would spend hours on, on that issue alone saying, why are you here? 
you need to understand that you're making a contribution to other people's lives. And if you do that well, they will become loyal. You'll develop relationships with your clients. They'll come back. They will refer other people. And you will then be successful in your own right because reward always follows the service, not the other way around. Absolutely. I am talking to Ian Fur this morning, and we're talking about his new book, Cultureering. You're listening to People of the Book. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I think the fact that you call them guests, not clients, not customers, I think that's indicative of the culture that you created. With, uh, at Sorbet. I think that was, that's where it starts. That is where it starts. That, that you have, yeah, that is the culture that you created there. The whole customer guest relation. I mean, it came from your father. I mean, it was something that your father did that you saw him do yeah. for a customer many years yes. ago. Tell that story because yeah. that really touched me. And that is, yeah. that is something that, that cannot be taught. That's something that, you know, when you see something when you see someone do something like what your father did for a customer that is something that sparks something in you and creates an idea which it obviously has done for you which has has now done so much over the years and created something like cultureering so tell me that story so my late father kenny fur he was one of the founding directors of russell furnishes and in fact the guy who started joshua door in south africa he used to be working in this furniture store in Thunderbird Park. That, that's where he started out. And he told the story of this guy, this customer who came in and bought a, a radio. And he bought a radio and he walked out and while he was busy opening the trunk of his car, the boot of his car, somehow the radio dropped and, and broke on the floor. Now this happened outside the store, but my father was watching through the window and saw this. And the guy was obviously terribly upset. He picked up the radio, didn't know what to do. So my father took a new radio, ran outside with it, and gave him the new radio and said, don't worry, you can have this one. And he took back the broken one. And that had a lasting impression on me. And that was just going way beyond what most retailers would ever do because there was no obligation for them to replace a radio that had been broken outside of the store. But he did that, and that was a big lesson for me. And I've, I've always believed in And all, all of the, the principles that we used at Sorbet are based on that type of philosophy. And that, that's where the, the whole culture of, of, of being of service to your customers, I mean, that's, that's where yeah. this comes from. But exactly. it all starts with, as you say in your book, Cultureering, it starts with there has to be – it comes from the top, obviously – it's got to come from somewhere. Someone's got to be, it's got to be filtering down into your, to your staff. Someone's got to be showing them the way. But that individual at the top or your team at the top, it's got to start with a journey of self-awareness and self-discovery. Okay, so self-discovery is the key in terms of leadership because we expect people to go out there and to create cultures and to transform things and to be able to manage all the complexity of the socio-political environment and all of those things, but we haven't yet been able to demonstrate the ability to transform ourselves, to change ourselves. And that's where the, the, the whole 
sort of backbone of culture nearing comes. It starts right. with self self discovery, understanding who you are, how you came to be what you are, and that change always needs to start with you. You know, there was a, a, a comment or a saying that I, I saw recently in a book, and it said, "Yesterday I thought I was clever, so I tried to change other people." But today I became wise, so I tried to change myself. I love that. That's incredibly powerful. It is incredibly Indeed, powerful. And, and if more people thought like that, and if more people realized that, can you imagine how far we would go and what we would get done and what we would achieve? That's 100% correct, Janice. And, and, and the thing is that change needs to start from within. You know, if, if you take an egg, for example, I, I like to use this as an example. If you take an egg and you break the egg from the outside, that's when life ends. There could have been a little chicken in there, but you smashed it and you made it into a scrambled egg and it ended up with a piece of dust. But the chicken didn't survive. On the other hand, when the egg is broken from the inside, that's when life begins. That's when that chick actually gets born. So change always starts from the inside. And, and it comes in from your heart and from your mind. And it's the changing of mindsets that's going to make a difference in this country. We are too fixated, what I call paradigm paralyzed. We are too fixated on what we think is right. We don't listen to other people. We only tell them what we think is right. We want them to change, not us. We don't change. We, we're happy to complain, even though it's from the comfort of our privilege. But we don't ever think that maybe compromise and changing mindset, shifting paradigms is what is going to ultimately change this country. You know, we, we've tried to change other people for many, many years. That doesn't work. Yeah. Never will work. We can only change when change starts from within, when we start to understand the need for change. And you've got a number of pillars and, and it's not just like, oh, I'll decide to change from within and it's just, oh, let's just yeah. do this. You have a number of right. pillars that you base this, this self-awareness and this journey of self-discovery on. Tell me a bit about these pillars and the methods that the, the steps that you use to work on this. Okay. So the one pillar is, is the self-development. The second pillar is the, the leadership style that we encourage. We call it culture driven leadership where you have to earn the moral authority to lead. It's not about the power-based authority. There's a huge difference between the old traditional power-based authority where because you sat on the top of the hierarchy or the structure of you were the boss or the manager, you could dictate, you could demand respect. That is not good enough anymore. Now you have to earn that. You have to earn what I call the moral authority to lead. And that means... You must be trusted and respected. You must be able to create a culture where everyone has a sense of belonging. You must show a true commitment to people's development and their growth as humans, not only as employees. And you must also show a genuine concern for their well-being. Everybody needs to understand that you care about them as people, particularly through the COVID situation. Are Are you really interested in their health? their physical health, their psychological health, their financial health. Are you showing any interest or are you just concerned about productivity? And finally, have you created a place of safety in which 
everyone feels comfortable to speak up without fear, without fear of intimidation, victimization. And these are the things that you can sort of check yourself against. Are you the kind of leader that plays all of those characteristics? Or are you the old top-down, heavy-handed, I'm in charge, you do what I tell you, and that's how we're going to see it from here. And you, you speak about this, and of course, these conversations need to be had about caring for your staff, because every individual who comes into your workplace, the people who work for you, they're coming in with their own baggage. And, yeah. you know, you know what, what are they coming in with? And you need yeah. to be aware of that, and you need to, as you say, you need to show that you really care for them. They're not just your employees. They're not just like individuals who are coming. And the whole culture of, you know, the whole basis of cultureneering is building a strong culture within your workforce. But you have to show that you actually care for them. It's not just like they're not there for your bottom line. They're there to serve your customers, not you, but in service for the people who you serve. And you need to show that you care because if they, if you don't care for them, they're not going to care for what you're doing. 100%. And that was very well uh, explained. Well done, Janet. Oh, thank that's you. Exactly. Right. <laughs> okay, so, so, so that's one hundred percent correct. And 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 essentially, you know, people say to me, "How does culture relate to the bottom line?" Because it's an, a bit of an invisible, intangible kind of thing, you know. And and I would say to them, you know, you know, culture doesn't only relate to the bottom line. Culture is the bottom line. If you don't have a strong culture, the chances of you being successful in business are reduced significantly. So that culture that you're talking about needs to take into account the the diversity element. And that's and a lot of my new book is, is based on the issue, particularly of racial polarization. Right. Obviously there, obviously there are other very important areas of diversity like gender and culture and religion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I don't for one moment downplay any of those, but I do focus a lot on race because I believe that racial polarization is the most important challenge that we face in South Africa today. There's virtually nothing in this country that is not touched by race Absolutely. in one way, you know, in one way or another. So the whole idea is to get people to understand firstly the history of the country. Okay, and, and we run workshops where we explain to people what really happened. The large majority of whites and even some black people have no idea of the extent of the mind manipulation and the social engineering that took place and created an ed degree of, and, and a mindset of white superiority and black inferiority that we lived with for many years through our education system, through the force with which we apply that system and all the laws and the apartheid, etc. So we created an incredibly unequal society, which we are still left with today. Absolutely. A lot of people say to me, why can't we just leave the past behind no, us? Move and on, move, move forward. Yeah. That's not going to happen. That, 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 that's horribly naive and irresponsible. That is not going to happen. So if, if we're thinking that, we're going to be waiting a long time for that to take place. We need to come to terms with what has happened. And, of course, with the last 27 years of wasted government and incredible corruption, where they should have been using all the money to, to uplift the country and to create more equality. And all they did, unfortunately, was steal the money and use it for 
itself. So that was disgraceful in my view and has really hurt the country very badly. However, it doesn't mean because the government is, is incapable of making changes that we as individuals and businesses also have to be incapable of change. So we need to understand that our people come from different backgrounds. We need to understand the complexities of their paradigms, what I call their book of rules. Your life experience is very, very different to mine and to theirs and to everyone else's. And when we cannot understand another person's book of rules and how they behave and why they behave the way they do, and it's largely because of their own life experience, if we can't understand that, how can we ever start to communicate effectively exactly. and create some equal society where everybody has an opportunity to participate meaningfully in the economy and, and to create some sort of equality? So it's an absolutely critical thing. And, and I know that there will be people out there right now listening to this, and especially young people, who say, you know, I wasn't there. You know, don't blame me for the sins of my fathers and, and everyone else. I was not the perpetrator, and yet now I am suffering the consequences of the so-called reverse racism, and I can't get a job because I'm white. And I would say to those people, yes, and I feel for them. I do feel for them. It's not an easy scenario to be yeah. find yourself in. However, there's one thing they really need to understand, is that they may not have been the perpetrator, but they have been the beneficiaries. And because you've been the beneficiary, you've lived a life of privilege, which many thousands and millions of people in this country have never had the opportunity to do. So it does require some degree of compromise and understanding. So young white people today are going to have to become more entrepreneurial. They're not going to find it easy to get jobs in the corporates anymore. That's the reality of it. Yes. And, that, and that's what it should be. I, I totally agree with that. I agree with black economic empowerment. I don't agree with the way it's been implemented. In this right. But the principle is right because we have to redress, you know, the basic inequalities of our society before we can move forward. We can't just ignore it and hope that it'll go away by itself. So we, we need to be doing something and, and that's really what, what I talk about a lot in, in this book. Absolutely. You are listening to People of the Book. I'm Janice Leibovitz. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am chatting to Ian Furr, and we're talking about his new book, Cultureneering. Ian, so we've spoken about cultureneering and about the art of building a strong culture, what cultureneering is, but how are we going to introduce this into more businesses and more organizations, specifically in South Africa, because our service record is not good. <laughs> I won't sugarcoat yeah, that. It's, it's yeah. not good. Yeah. How do we, do we get the word out? How do we get this training to more businesses? How do we get a training model out? How do we, even if it's just, you know, to get the book out so that more people are aware of it, how do we get the word out about, about what this is so that more people know about it? So I think what's happening, Janice, is with all the dramas in this country, with what's going on, people are starting to realize that, that we're in, I think we're in serious trouble here. We need to actually do something. We can't wait 
for the government to, to sort it out. So people are starting to realize, and particularly business leaders, and the more I come across them, the more I can see it. They do, they do understand the need to build culture now in business. Before it was a bit of a soft, fuzzy, warm thing that you did. You ask your HR manager to tick a few boxes and that was it, you know, and de- develop a plan and a mission statement and values and all that. And let's, let's go on a, let's go on a team building thing and let's build a raft. Yes. Yeah, that kind of thing. Build a raft and then put up a plaque on the wall that says we don't discriminate and, and all that, that type of thing. But, but basically people are starting to realize that we need to do something if we want to create some sort of meaningful change. If we don't do it, what is the outcome likely to be? We have this incredibly huge inequality gap in South Africa, one of the highest inequality gaps in the world in terms of wealth. If we don't change, how are we going to rectify that? And what are the consequences be? We've already got a little bit of a taste of it from the looting and the unrest in yes. the recent years, where you know the the unemployed people and the people who who have become desperate are starting to do whatever it takes. They've got tired of having nothing and not having an opportunity or access to to some sort of economic sustainability. So they, you know, if we don't do something, we're likely to see more of that. And I've been warning about that for, for some time, long before the looting actually started. And because we just keep hoping that we can hang on to our privileges and everything will be okay. It's not going to happen. We need to be making some serious compromises. Greed is the killer here. You know, corruption, corruption is not about race or, or, or anything other than pure greed and, and, um, you know, looking at yourself, what I call rugged individuality. It's all about me and what can I get out of the system rather than what can I put into it. And so we, we need to seriously be taking this into every organization in the country and, and getting the word, spreading the word and things like you're doing right now, spreading the word to say it's time to make some serious changes. And that can only start in your own mind. Your mindset needs to change individually. And that can become pervasive when enough people start to realize that the status quo is unsustainable. Absolutely. It's a frightening thought. Mm-hmm. It is a very frightening. And you, you go, am I right that you go and you, you are giving training courses and, and you go around and you do that? Correct. So that's what I'm doing at the Hatch Institute. So I, I do coaching, I do consulting, um, you know, with, with different companies, with individuals, with leadership teams, all of that. We do race relations courses. There's a lot of activity that we're busy with, and it's building nicely, and, the, and it's getting a lot of traction. It's only been going for two years. We started it just before COVID. It took a little while to get itself off the ground, but now it's really doing well, and we have, you know, a number of important clients out there that are that are sort of catching on to the culture nearing philosophy. And this is obviously all types of organizations. I mean, all industries. Yes, all industries, because it's applicable in any industry, in any organization. Oh, definitely. 
Yeah, and, and it's also applicable for entrepreneurs as well. So it's not only for corporates, and, and but it's also applicable for entrepreneurs, startups who are trying to get their businesses going so that they understand the importance of developing a culture right from the outset. A lot of startups get going and then a couple of years down the line, they say, oh, my word, I forgot that I had to build a culture. And I've got to go back and try and change all the people that are working for me to try and get them to all start thinking alike and to be aligned in, in our philosophy. But So I say to people, do it right from the outset. From the beginning, let everybody know that joins your company that there's a very specific culture of service that exists here. And if you are not there, or if, if you are what I call an eye specialist, which is only when you think about yourself only, if you if you are that, then you don't belong. I would say that very clearly at Sober. If you're an eye specialist and you've come to, to take more than you give, you do not belong. You, you better go somewhere else. So start, yeah, you've got to, my, my mother has this expression, start as you mean to go on. Yes, exactly. That's nice. I like that. So that you don't have to then go back and backtrack and look at where you went wrong. Because that, yeah. I mean, apart from wasting time, you know, you've gone wrong somewhere and you're going to just lose time going forward. So, yes. yeah, build your sustainable culture from the ground up. Ian Fur, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you about cultureneering. I mean, I've learned a lot and I do not have a business mind at all. I've just... I, I can't fathom it, but this makes perfect sense, especially when you, you look at the, at the attitudes of customers from a customer point of view. I mean, we are all customers. We're all, we are all clients. We're all customers. Mm-hmm. We all shop. We all, you know, we all, yes. we're all users. We're all end users. So, yeah. you know, to, to understand culture and service, it's, it's vital. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me this morning about cultureneering. And yes, thank you very much. Let's hope that it's a pleasure. Let's just hope that more and more people will start to understand it and use it in in organizations and in industries. And let's just get the word out. And where is the book available? It's available at all exclusive bookstores, plus other bookstores as well as online, Kindle. It's available in most places. Okay, great. Thank you so, so much, Ian Fur. It has been great chatting to you this morning. And to you, my dear listener, as I always tell you, take care of yourself, take care of each other, get vaccinated, wear a mask and read a book.